Lord willing, get through the first 14 verses. So I was thinking, um, I had a memory from about, I don't know, 13 years ago or so when, uh, <laughs> sorry, when uh, Molly and Marissa were little. And I remember, uh, I think any parents will be able to relate where they were in the other room playing. Marissa would have been like six months old. She was in one of those like saucer things, you know, where they can kind of bounce and spin. And really all they do is slam their face into it, try to eat it, drool all over it. And so Molly's in there. She's two, two and a half. And all of a sudden, Marissa's just screaming, crying. And, and so <laughs> we go in there, and Molly's playing with toys, and Marissa's crying, and what had happened, you know, they, they make those things, they're supposed to be to keep them alive and safe while you go about your life, but they put these toys on them that are designed to inflict pain, so there was this one toy, a plastic toy that was just on this spring, and Molly had grabbed it, pulled it back, and let it go as Marissa was coming forward, and it just smacked her in the face, so she's crying, and uh, which is funny, and especially if you picture them as they are now in the story, um, and so we're like, we come in, and we're like, what happened? And Molly says, oh, I did this. <laughs> and she grabbed that toy, ripped it back, and let it go into Marissa's face again. And then just, <laughs> which started the whole cycle over, and then just looked at us. No guilt, no shame. And we thought, she might be a sociopath. I don't, I don't know, like, who are we raising? <laughs> I was like, okay, in your conscience, even, even as a two-year-old, like, you should know, okay, that wasn't cool. And I think, man, there's so many times, like, I know for me, probably the time that I'm comfortable sharing where, like, my conscience was just so eaten up with guilt. Like, I think that we, we, can all, we all know that feeling when you're just eaten up with guilt and there's really nothing you can do to make it right. When I, I, I was 15 years old, we, we lived with my aunt and uncle in their home, and, and they had gone on vacation, and so they were gone, and somewhere in the week, I decided I was going to start driving his car around the neighborhood, and so I was, I was stealing my uncle's car, um, and it was mostly to impress a girl, but I'm, I'm, so I've stolen my uncle's car, and I'm driving around the neighborhood, and I just lost control, and I T-boned a mailbox, a brick mailbox. And I, I hit it so good, it, the foundation came about halfway out of the ground, and actually, it was front-wheel drive. And so all I knew is all of a sudden, I was looking at the horizon, and I could hear the tires just spinning. And uh, man, it was about three or four days, I guess, until they came home. And then the first 48 hours that my uncle was home, he didn't look at me, he didn't talk to me. And I felt horrible. And I knew, like, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have the money to fix the car, and he's talking to the insurance, and he, which he told them he was driving to try to get out. You know, it was just this mess, and I just remember just that feeling. You know, that feeling just like, I can't make this right. My conscience is guilty, and I've done wrong, and same feeling I would have every time I sat in the principal's office, especially through middle school, like just waiting on, like, yeah, I, I did these things. <laughs> like just waiting on the punishment, but knowing, like, I can't make it right. I think that feeling that all humans know, like we know deep down that something is wrong. And it really goes back to the garden. 
Like, it goes back to the garden when we bit into the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and our conscience was made alive. Like, it's a good thing that we should be able to use because we're made in the image and likeness of God to be able to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong. But, man, our conscience is perverted by sin. And humanity has found a million different ways since that moment to try to deal with this inconvenient reality that we know everything's not all right. And we know I'm the problem. And so our text tonight gets into that because God in his grace, and man, Spencer did such an awesome job in, in last week's sermon talking about the old covenant and why, like, why, why did this exist for so long? Like, why didn't Jesus just come right away and, and God's setting up these pictures and images and these like moving illustrations for us to be able to understand our need for the gospel. So God had set up in Israel a way for people to approach God because our conscience is right, like there is something wrong. And what's wrong is we're separated from our God apart from Christ because our conscience is, is defiled because of our impurity, we've been separated from our God. And philosophy, psychology, therapy, even I mean, we, all the different false religions that we've come up with to try to deal with a guilty, defiled conscience, and they fall flat. Even, I mean, what we're seeing so much now is the, not trying to do away with it or, and cover it, but like to embrace it. To say, no, 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 what, what you're saying is wrong is not wrong, it's good. We're calling evil good and embracing it and saying, no, the only reason people would think this is wrong is because of a structure within society that was founded on the Bible, and that's why people feel guilty for the way that they're living, and they shouldn't feel guilty. They should celebrate these things. And it leaves them just as much in their guilt, in their shame, drowning without hope. The Bible addresses these things, and God had set up in Israel a way for people to draw near. So, starting in verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant, the first or the old, had regulations for worship, for an earthly place of holiness. For a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So if you remember, we, earlier in this study, we walked through and we, we looked at images of the tabernacle, and they'll be up again in a minute just to refresh our mind, but that yet God had given them this tent, which one day would become under Solomon in the temple, but at first it was just a tent that they could move around the wilderness, and it was a, a means to draw near to God. But, and we won't go into all the furnishings of the temple. I'm going to follow his lead here and say, like, okay, no, that's not the main point. And to go into the lampstand and the altar and the basin and 
but the main point of what was happening there. What was happening there? And you remember that the high priest, that all the priests who got to serve in the tabernacle, they would go into the courtyard, the outer part, and that's where sacrifices would be made. There was a huge altar there for the animals to be burned on and sacrifice would be made. And this was constantly happening day in and day out where people could bring a lamb, bring a goat, bring a bull and make an offering for their sin. And then the priest also by lot would have the opportunity probably just once in their lifetime to go into the holy place which is through that first set of curtains where they would serve, they would set out the bread and they would light the, the candle and they would burn incense in there and that's a picture of prayer going up before the Lord. Remember that's uh, Zechariah when by lot it was his turn to serve in the holy place when the angel comes to him and says, you know, your wife who's barren is gonna have a child, speaking of John the Baptist. You know, they would go in there constantly but then it was just the one day a year on the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go. And so he picks up and he says, uh, verse seven, but into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself. And listen, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, he's teaching that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. Here it is. Here's the main point. That cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He said, I mean, the system was built up so the people could draw closer to God, right? So you have the nation of Israel, out of all the nations of the earth, this one nation got to come a little bit closer to God. Our sin has separated all of us. Israel gets to come closer. And then within Israel, one tribe could come a little bit closer as they, the tribe of Levi as they served in the, the temple or the tabernacle. And then out of that tribe, one family, the family of Aaron, out of that family could come the high priest where they would one day a year serve in the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And so as much as it speaks to God's grace in drawing near, it speaks to our separation. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is it never accomplished the point of cleansing your conscience so that you would ever feel confident to come before your God. That you would never have full access to the, to the God who made you, to the God who loves you, to the God who made you in his image and likeness so that you would know him and love him and serve him. There's still separation. And here's the point. It wasn't ethnicity and it wasn't tribe, and it wasn't family, and it wasn't curtains that separated us from God. It's our conscience in two ways. In two ways that our conscience keeps us separated from God, apart from Christ. One is that it's really defiled. When it's telling us something is wrong, man, that's such a gift from God. Something is wrong. Sin has defiled us. 
that demands justice, demands wrath. And it's warning us that that's our case, before, our, our, our situation before a holy God. The other way it separates us is that feeling, that understanding that I'm not worthy. It keeps us separated from him. And this old, the Old Testament, this system which was beautiful and helpful, like it never accomplished the goal of bringing us into full relationship, total, unlimited access into the presence of God. It couldn't do that. Turn to Leviticus 16. We'll spend a few minutes here. I encourage you if you want to learn more about the things that he said we don't have time for, pick up in Exodus 25 through 30 and you can read about the instruments and the, the, the furnishings of the tabernacle. A lot of cool ways that it points to Christ. But in Leviticus 16, we meet Aaron and he's, he's getting instructions for he's the first high priest of Israel and before this, the tabernacle has already been set up. And Aaron had two boys, two sons, and they had been serving in the tabernacle. And if you'll remember, they do something. We're not told explicitly what they did that was wrong, but they offered some sort of strange fire in the presence of Yahweh, and they are consumed. They die in the presence of the Lord. And so then God's giving Moses more specific instruction to Aaron. Now, don't let this be lost on you. Like, to the father of those boys. Listen to what the Lord says. Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before Yahweh and died. And Yahweh said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban these are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Remember house from chapter three, that means family. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself 
And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before Yahweh and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before Yahweh that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood into the veil, inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it all over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahweh and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present, listen to this, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, there's a lot going on there. This is the picture that God painted. And he's telling us, hey listen, today the Holy Spirit has a lesson to teach us from these things. And the main point of the lesson is that it could never remove the guilt and shame and defilement of your conscience that is keeping you out of fellowship with your creator. Couldn't do it. But we have this vivid picture of Aaron, and, and I, I, I just, I, I can't get over this. I can't imagine this for Aaron. God killed his sons in the tabernacle. And then he has to go back in there to make first an offering for himself and the rest of his family, and then on behalf of a sinful nation. Now, you may be better at controlling your thoughts than me. I, I'm not super good at it. Right, like, I mean, just... <laughs> I told you before, for, to even be able to pray for like 10 minutes, I have to type it out because my mind just goes to weird places. Like my mind wanders and it usually doesn't go to somewhere pure and holy and like where the crystal river flows and cherubim are singing. Like it doesn't go there, it goes to other places. 
And I can't imagine, like, he's got to go in there. How does he go in there and not have bitterness in his heart towards the God he's supposed to serve? Like, over the death of his boys, or just, just his own sin, selfishness and pride and greed and envy. Like, all that you know is in your own heart and mind. Like, he's carrying that in there. That's why he's got the vivid picture of the, this basin with the blood of a bull in it because he's sinful, he's guilty, his conscience isn't clean. And he knows he deserves the wrath that God has the power to unleash. He's got to go in for himself and then for the nation. I see, you picture it, right? Like he, maybe with the bull he, he, and the goat, he's like grabbing their horns symbolically transferring his sin, his family's sin, the sin of the nation onto this animal so that by their blood this temporary picture of atonement can be made. And I, I think they knew all along. I think they knew all along that this didn't actually take away their guilt. This didn't actually take away their sin. I, I think of King David, when he's committed sin. Now pause here, so when the writer of Hebrews, y'all tracking with me? One of the pastors is with me, okay, good. (laughs) Y'all with me? You picturing it in your mind? There's so many vivid pictures. And do you remember the writer of Hebrews, he says, he would offer for the sin, the, the unintentional sins of the people. That should make us all hit the brakes. So the, there was a sacrifice for unintentional sin. What about intentional sins? I can't, I don't know about you. Yes, I do. I'm saying that, but you know I do. I know about us. Most of our sins are intentional. Was there no provision for intentional sins? And, and we gotta be careful. People are all over the map on this, and some of the ambiguity in the language between intentional and unintentional is, in, is on purpose. But it's not like what we get in English where you think, oh, unintentional sins, like I just, I really didn't mean to do that. It caught me off guard, or I didn't know about it. It wasn't intentional. I, I didn't see the speed limit change. Like, it, it's not that kind of thing. It's more of highlighting what the Old Testament refers to as high-handed sin. What we're gonna come to in chapter 10 that's described as willful sinning. If we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And more the point is what, what high-handed or intentional sin that yes, there was no provision for was this. I know it's sinful. I know it's an attack against God's nature and character. I know God said not to do it, and I'm doing it anyway, not just because it's what I want to do, but because I'd rather do what I want to do than serve God. That's terrifying. Do people really go there? Absolutely. David went there. Because you remember when David's praying his prayer? And he says, he says two things that seem to contradict. He says, he says, you don't desire sacrifice or else I would give it. Do you remember Psalm 51? He says, uh, you don't desire sacrifice. You don't desire the blood of a bull or goat. What's he saying? Like, I know that can't help me. 
But in the same prayer he says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. And then he says this, purge me with hyssop. What's that? The hyssop branch. The branch that was used to dip into the blood of the lamb at Passover to put the blood on the doorway and then later on in Exodus, they're to take a hyssop branch and sprinkle almost everything with blood as a picture of it being atoned for. So he's saying, I know the blood of animals can't, can't be a sacrifice for my high-handed rebellion against you, but in the same prayer says, so purge me with the blood of the lamb. I think they knew, I think they knew all of this wasn't an end in and of itself. It was all pointing to the greater lamb, the greater sacrifice. He knew his only hope is that one day God would provide a sacrifice that really could purge him of his guilt and his shame and his sin. That every year when the high priest would go in and they, tradition tells us this, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but to me it just makes sense. <laughs> and when I've preached on this at camp before, and I think even for Red Oak, like, I, I believe, I, I, whatever that tradition is, that, that they started tying a rope around the high priest, I mean, that just makes sense. Because if he goes in there over and over and over and over again in Leviticus 16, he says, tell Aaron to do it just like this, so that what? So that he may not get fired? No. Like, get demoted? No so they may not die. And if he did die, who's going in to get him? Not me. All right, you can see all the pastors, priests standing outside, like hadn't heard a bell in a while. Who's going in there? Somebody get Zach. Uh, <laughs> Zach knows Greek. Get Spencer. <laughs> Just, somebody, somebody go get him. Where's Sean? <laughs> no, like, it makes sense that they'd have a rope attached to him to pull him out. Because who, like, if, he, if he's supposed to be the best of us and he took in the blood of the bull and, and he took in the blood of the goat on our behalf and God didn't receive that, I'm not going in there. There's separation, why? We feel it in our conscience. We're impure, we're defiled, we're guilty. And we can come up with religions and we can come up with philosophies and we can come up with a whole system of psychology that says it's really not your fault. It's all these other things and the guilt that you're feeling, that's not real. That's been projected onto you by this, this system that's been in place that you were raised in. That's not your fault. Let's remove that. No, no, no. At the end of the day, my conscience is guilty. And if I'm not careful, all I'll do by embracing more sin, shifting the blame, is sear that conscience, make it more callous. And this is where the law, and it's, it's worth taking the time to talk about these things because that was the whole point of the law. It speaks to the conscience. It tells us something's wrong. It tells us we need a greater sacrifice. That's why y'all have heard me say it a bunch of my favorite Charles Spurgeon quote where he says, I do not believe, I don't believe that any man can preach the gospel who doesn't first preach the law. For the law is the needle and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart 
until the law first makes way for it. Why a needle? Because our conscience is hard. We've seared it by ignoring its warnings day in and day out as we continue in sin. So Aaron would go in, do his work, and get out. He didn't, I think what becomes so clear is he didn't belong in there. He didn't belong in there. So every year a new high priest, or however long a high priest would serve, and then a new one would take over and go in and do these same sacrifices, get in, get out. Whether a rope's tied to him or not, he's getting in, he's getting out. They try to keep it dark. They would burn the incense even so that there is smoke between them and the mercy seat and the tablets of the law that only speak to our guilt before a holy God who said, hey, I'll dwell there, I'll be there. And there's fear, there, there's separation. I didn't belong. And then he'd go out. And then there's this weird picture with the other goat, right? Azazel. That's probably not how you say it, but it's how I say it. Other translations will say scapegoat. It's where we get our, our, our term and our idea for scapegoat, which still fits. It's, 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 it's a good picture. People say, oh, yeah, he's kind of made the scapegoat. What are they saying? Uh, he got blamed for everything. He took the blame. He took the fall. So, you know, shift, shift the blame from us onto him. That's what was happening. It's this picture of, like, the, the sacrifice being made, atonement being made, blood being shed to cover our sin that demands our death, the blood of an innocent given, the spotless, blameless blood of a lamb. And then this other one, the picture is, yeah, it's taking that guilt and shame and being sent away into the wilderness never to return. It's a really cool picture. And so we come back to Hebrews chapter nine, and he says, man, all of that, all of that was just outwardly. It was just ceremonial. It could just set you apart to like temporarily worship and then you have to do this all again. And there was never any confidence, never any full unlimited access. He says, verse 10, these things deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see it? Jesus is the fulfillment of, of what all these pictures were so that our conscience could be cleansed, so that the actual impurity could be removed because he offers his own blood, his spotless blood. 
that actually has the power to remove our sin. And he goes into the presence of God, into the holy place, not made with hands, into the heavenly reality, and he offers himself. Now, listen to this quote, if I can find it. Here it is. It's from Kent Hughes. He said this. The theological message portrayed through the rites performed on this most sacred day, on the Day of Atonement in Israel, serve as a template for understanding the message of Christianity. The centerpiece of Christianity is the cross where Jesus' death resulted in the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of his blood for all who repent and express faith in Christ as Savior. The rituals that happened on the Day of Atonement provided an explanation through moving pictures of what, listen to this, the Day of Atonement provided an explanation through moving pictures of what happened in God's eyes when Jesus died on Mount Calvary. When Jesus is on the cross bleeding, when he's suffering, when he's dying, this is how God sees what he's doing, accomplishing our redemption. Jesus is on the cross, nails through his hands and his feet, and what he's doing is providing full access for us by the shedding of his own blood, because it's not being offered to the Romans, it's not being offered to the devil, he's bringing it before his Father on our behalf. He's sprinkling it on the mercy seat so that he can then provide eternal redemption, full forgiveness, the actual cleansing of our conscience, impurities removed, but not just the removal of our impurity and our defilement, but changing the way we think and feel about our relationship with God. That's huge. It's interesting, the, the relationship between Jesus and the high priest who were serving when he was physically on earth. Do you remember who it was? Caiaphas serving as high priest. I remember Jesus' ministry is kind of blowing up, getting famous, and they're, they're, not, they're not down with that. They're, they're jealous. And, and remember, at one point, they're having this meeting. It's people from the Sanhedrin, so it's some Sadducees and Pharisees, and they're debating all this, and the priests are there, and, and Caiaphas rebukes him. He's kind of a jerk. He's like, y'all are being idiots. You're being fools. Like, don't you know, like, what we have to do here? Don't you know it's better that one person die than the whole nation? And they're scared about Rome. He, he thinks, hey, if we let this happen and they think this guy's the Messiah, Rome will come in and, and you know, smash us, whatever, like they're worried about that. But he says this and John goes, oh, time out. Now Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying, but because he was high priest, he was prophesying. What did he say? He said it's better it's, in another place it says, it's more expedient that one man die than the whole nation. He didn't realize what he was saying. He was identifying Jesus as that sacrificial lamb, that goat who would be killed and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat for the sins of the people, to make atonement, to make propitiation. Fast forward because I think that, that image, right, that image of Aaron coming out and putting his hands on the head of the animal 
and symbolically transferring the guilt of the people to it. And you fast forward, the night that Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested. You remember, he's taken before all these jokers. This mock trial takes place. Do you see it? Do you picture it in your mind? You got the high priest sitting exalted above Jesus, surrounded by these priests, surrounded by these temple guards, and they're all leveling accusations against him, and they're calling him a liar. They're saying he, he's trying to lead an insurrection. They're, they're saying that he claimed to be God, and they're, 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 they're saying all these things against Jesus, and Jesus, it says, like a lamb before his shears is silent, open not his mouth. And it's so muddled because the witnesses can't even agree. And finally, Caiaphas stands up. He's like, enough. He says, do you claim to be the son of God? Are you the son of the most high? Are you the son of the most blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And Caiaphas tears his robe. And he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? He's a blasphemer. And he accuses Jesus of sin and they start pounding on Jesus. They spit on him, they slap him, they punch him, they tear him out of there, and it just begins the torture that he'll experience that night. And I think they unwittingly didn't, they didn't even realize that they're playing their part. Caiaphas doesn't realize He's symbolically transferring the guilt of the nation. Our guilt, our shame, our sin, we're the blasphemers. We're the ones who claim to be God of our lives and we're not. And all that gets transferred to Jesus who like a lamb doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't even realize (laughs) He's playing the God-ordained role that every high priest had played before, except now, now it's real. And Jesus bears that sin, and he bears that guilt, and he bears that shame, and he carries his cross all the way to Calvary. And I've often wondered this. On the Day of Atonement, for that goat or that bull, It's a pretty clean, quick process. Sharp knife, you cut the throat, whatever, I don't know how animals experience pain, I don't know, but whatever, it's quick. It's quick and they bleed out fast. It's vivid, it's real, but it's quick. And I think, it wasn't like that for Jesus. Why? (laughs) Why did he have to suffer so acutely? Why did it have to be so excruciating? Why the scourging? Why the additional humiliation of the crown of thorns, the being crucified naked? Why did it have to be crucifixion where he's fighting for every breath, pushing up on the nails in his feet, pulling on the nails in his wrist? Why? I don't have a good, clean, 
well-articulated theological reason. But Isaiah says this, He was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I don't know, but that's how it had to happen. And he laid down his life so that our conscience could be cleansed, not just so that we don't have to go to hell, but so that we would feel differently. And I use the word feel on purpose because there's oftentimes as believers who believe everything that was just preached. Jesus' blood was shed for the remission and the forgiveness of my sins. I belong to God. But you live as if the feelings that your conscience is still separating you from God is the most real thing. And it's not. It's been cleansed. And Jesus went into the holy place, into the very presence of God, And unlike those high priests in Israel, he doesn't hurry out, he stays, he belongs, he sits down, enthroned as the son of God, our great king priest. And there's not a rope, there's not a rope tied to him to bring him out in case God's not pleased with his sacrifice. God is pleased with his sacrifice. But chapter six in Hebrews tells us, oh, no, 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 no. He's not getting pulled out. He's the anchor. I got this. He's the anchor. And connected to that anchor is a chain. And connected to the anchor is, to the chain is the boat of our faith. And what he is doing is he is not allowing us to drift. He's saying, I don't care what your conscience is telling you. It has been cleansed. It has been purged with the blood of Jesus. And what Jesus is doing every day as our great high priest who makes intercession for us is he's pulling us in. Every day. He's not allowing you to drift. He's pulling you in. He's saying, live your life here. Live your life here in my presence. Come boldly. Because I'm so awesome? No, because Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Be easy to pass over that last part, but that's the whole point. Why have our consciences been cleansed? So that we could serve. So we could serve. 
We don't just go into the presence of God with Jesus and party. We go in to serve. We don't need, we don't need a priest. We have a great high priest. And now what we have is the priesthood of all believers. We are all ministers in the presence of God. So what do we do? Now we get to serve. We get to serve. We get to go in and pray for ourselves. Absolutely. We get to go in and do what we did tonight for Alani and pray for one another. We get, to, we get to invite other people into this glorious truth that, okay, quit making all the excuses in the world. Quit, quit trying to make a fig leaf out of philosophy and hedonism and whatever else you would do to try to get away from the guilt and shame that you actually feel. Like, man, come and have your sins forgiven in the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. We get to minister from this place, from the very presence of God with a clean conscience because of the perfect work of Jesus. We're now ministers. The Day of Atonement, Aaron would get done and the, the second goat would be sent off. And a lot of guys would say like, the second goat doesn't really come into play here in chapter nine. And I, I disagree. I, th- I think the second goat is implied because yeah, our guilt has to be like our actual the legal, moral ramifications of our sin had to be dealt with, but so does our feeling of guilt and shame. And that's what that goat pictures. And it's been removed. It's been removed. It's gone. We've been separated from our sin like the East is from the West. I think the way Spencer said it last week was so good. I, I won't do it. Well, I'll try. He said, he said, the God who knows all, remembers everything, chooses to forget our sin been separated. It's been carried away. Pray with me. Lord God, I love you and thank you for your perfect once for all sacrifice. Thank you for cleansing our conscience. Thank you for allowing us to have full, real, unlimited access into your presence. I pray that we would enjoy that now as we sing songs about your perfect work. And God, I I pray if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, I pray that their sins, the picture in their mind would be their sins being transferred to you on the cross as they cry out and repentance and faith. That they would find in you hope. They find in you purity and cleansing and purpose. I pray that you give them the courage to come talk to us. Lord, I, I, I pray as a church, as believers, as we deal with feelings of inadequacy and that uh, I'm, I'm struggling, I, I don't, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy to serve before the Lord that we wouldn't believe those lies, that we would believe the truth that you've cleansed us, Lord, that you've made us righteous, that you made us pure, and that we would, from that, that standard, serve you for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.